This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit with a new podcast today. It's September 12th, but I'm recording this on September 11th. And I wasn't going to do a podcast today. Honestly, I don't do them every week all the time, but I decided at the last minute this morning on September 11th to get off my ass and actually do a podcast. And the reason I wasn't planning on doing it, I'll be frank with you, was there was college football yesterday, the season started, and today the NFL is starting. And frankly, I was just too distracted. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I like college football. I like pro football. And I went on a weekend to watch, sit on the couch and watch uh, football both days. But I was also thinking about it. If I was going to do a podcast, uh, I was planning on talking about the whole Duke volleyball situation uh, with the now discredited story that uh, one of the players uh, had claimed that a Brigham Young fan was screaming uh, racial threats at her. She was the one player on the Duke team that's black, and now it's been largely discredited. I thought that was an interesting story when you consider Duke's history with the lacrosse team and with the uh, fake story, uh, fake uh, accusation of crime that ruined a bunch of kids' lives and how Duke did almost nothing to support the kids instead of, uh, instead they just really uh, excommunicated them and uh, ended up they were wrong then and naturally they're wrong again. So 15 years later or whatever it was, uh, things haven't changed. I was also going to talk about my first federal trial, which luckily for me was with Jimmy LaRosa, and I've talked about him in the past on, on this podcast. It was actually his last federal criminal trial, my first federal criminal trial. I'll, I'll probably do this stuff next week, but they were the ideas that I had in my head. But instead, uh, as I said, I'm recording this on 9-11. It's the 21st anniversary since uh, the attacks on America by radical Islam, by Al-Qaeda, by the Taliban. And I realized that 21 years later, this is really all that matters today. This is what should be talked about, nothing else. <clears throat> so I needed to do it. It was the right thing to do. And I was thinking of uh, friends of mine uh, who actually sacrificed in the war on terror my friends Brandon, Brett, and Brian, the killer bees, and they're, they're actually really killer bees, not just killer bees with lowercase k, and Mike, who fought over there after 9-11 and sacrificed so much and are still sacrificing today for all of us. The least I could do uh, was to record a podcast today. Now, I remember that day like it was yesterday, 9-11. It's burned into my mind. I was working on 26th Street and Madison Avenue, 41 Madison Avenue, about a mile or so from ground zero. And it was just a perfect morning that day on 9-11, 2001, just the perfect blue sky. There was not a cloud in the sky. I got into the subway. I think it was the sixth train. It had to be going down to my office. And I probably got in around 8 35 or so and headed down to my office. It was a typical day. I didn't have any court that day. So I'd be at my office um, all day on the 34th floor of 41 Madison Avenue. And as I got out of the subway, I made my way across 26th Street to go into the side of the building. That was the quickest way to get to the elevator instead of going through the front. And I saw a lawyer on my floor there. We were a space that rented offices to a number of lawyers, small firms, solo practitioners. Jimmy LaRosa was actually the landlord, and uh, there was a had to be probably 20 lawyers there or so there. 
And uh, Lori McPherson was the lawyer's name. We shared space, as I said. And I saw her, and uh, there was just a look on her face, kind of frozen in shock, I suppose. But, you know, I've probably seen that face on her before. But she said to me, did you hear about the plane? And I had no idea what she was referring to. I had just been on the subway for about 15 minutes, I suppose. And it was about, at this time, around 8.55 a.m., the first plane had hit the World Trade Center just a few minutes earlier. And she told me that a small plane had hit the World Trade Center. And my stomach sank because I, I knew what it was. I hoped it wasn't what I thought it was, but I knew what it was. I knew in my heart that it was, it was Muslim terror. I've always been, as if you've listened to this podcast, I'm highly sensitive to Muslim terror since I was a small boy watching, I suppose, when I was about seven or eight, watching multiple Arab states attacking Israel on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur for Jews. Egypt and Syria attacked Israel, and they were, of course, supported by every other Arab state in the region, countless uh, numbers of them. And they all had the singular desire to destroy Israel, and this was just a few decades after the Holocaust, in which the Nazis had killed six million Jews. So as a young boy, this left a pretty big impression on me because I had relatives that were killed in the Holocaust and had ultimately settled many of them in Israel. It was a personal thing to me. And we never thought of it as Muslim terror back then. That, that term didn't exist. It was just Arabs. That's really all it was. It never really felt like it was a religious component, more like a political thing, just hatred of all that were Israel. Anyway, as I made my way up to our offices um, on the 34th floor, I had hoped that it was just a wayward plane uh, that, that smashed into the World Trade Center. And, but I knew, I knew that it wasn't. Everybody inside was shocked. They were huddling around. There was one TV on the floor, and everybody was abuzz about what had occurred. Now, I was up there at around 9 o'clock, I suppose. We were told on TV, we had the news on, that it was a small plane, a single pilot, not a catastrophic event, but it, it certainly was the big news of the day. I mean, we were in New York. We were in Manhattan. This was, this was it. We were watching not CNN or Fox. We were watching the local news. And we looked out our windows, the corner office that faced the World Trade Center actually had windows from pretty much the floor to the ceiling, the entire wall. So we could, we had a perfect view down Madison Avenue and we could see the towers, which was about a mile away and a mile away when the buildings were that big, they were very clear and right in front of us. And as we're watching, all of a sudden another plane hits the towers and that was it. There was no question in my mind that it was it was Muslim terrorists who had done it because no other people on earth could be so purely evil. And no other people could have been so happy to die while killing other people. That's sort of how you knew that it was radical Islam because, you know, you may have bad actors in the world, but not many of them, you know, happily, gleefully die in order, you know, to kill other people and would be willing to die to do it. That's the fanatical uh, side of Islam. And uh, we quickly learned that it was actually two large passenger planes, which was a lot different than a small solo plane. It was not a small plane. It was clear from the news at this point that it was terrorism. Now, nobody called it Muslim terror yet because no one had taken any responsibility for it. And everybody on the floor was pretty much freaking out. There was, I don't know. As I said, about 20 lawyers, maybe 15 of us were in support staff and whatnot. 
Everybody was freaking out now that it was clear it was a coordinated terror attack. We had heard that there was another plane that had hit the Pentagon and people were just reeling inside that place. And then we heard that the White House might have been hit. You know, there was a lot of, of, of news that came out that wasn't accurate. The Supreme Court was hit. We didn't know what was, was going on. It felt like America was being attacked, and it was, on our soil, and we were completely unprepared. And for the first time in my lifetime, it was, it was a very unnerving feeling, a very insecure feeling to have what seemed to be a war brought, not, to, not just to our country, but you know, a mile away to our town, to our city. So everybody, of course, the first thing you do, and this was 21 years ago, but everybody had a cell phone then. I mean, they were a lot bigger then than they are now. You probably couldn't browse as well, or, or even if at all back then. I think we might have had a clamshell phone. I don't know, one of those where you couldn't, you couldn't uh, get the internet, but you just could use the phone. But we called and, and the phones weren't working. Everybody was calling just to let everybody know that we were okay. Um, and also to try to find people that perhaps were working in the World Trade Center at the time to call their numbers. But there was very little service. The phone service was just horrible. The hard lines were down as well. We didn't know it at the time, but cell towers had been destroyed in the attacks, along with switching equipment that was used for landline phones. And one of the other problems, there was just such a huge surge in traffic, as I said, from people trying to find their loved ones or letting others know that they were okay. So we couldn't use our phones. Like 95% of the time you'd call, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a chance. It just was dead. Both phones, hardline and, as I said, the cell phones. We had the cable news on at this point. We had the cable was working so we could watch TV. And they were telling us what was going on outside of our building in New York City. But we could see it with our eyes, but we needed people to tell us because all we were doing is seeing. We wondered, I remember thinking, was the rest of the country beyond New York and D.C. being attacked? We didn't know about the plane that had, had gone down before it hit the White House. I remember thinking, does anybody care about us? We were just alone, and it felt very isolating in this gigantic city. That The entire country is watching us, but they don't have to deal with this. We were dealing with it right then. And we could see the towers that were smoldering, the, the, the smoke coming out of the top, just pouring out of them so steady. It wasn't like... It was like a little bit of smoke and then a lot and then a little. No, it was just heavy, heavy smoke all the time. And people on our floor started to leave. Some people got out of there right away. Most of us stayed, but all the subways were out. The subway service was out. All the buses were out. I mean, nobody knew if there were bombs packed on these places, you know, on the, on the, the buses, on the trains, you know, Metro North, Long Island Railroad, they were all out. All train service was out. So anybody who wanted to get home to Long Island or Westchester, you're out of luck. You're stuck. And it's not like you could leave the city by car. You couldn't. They wouldn't let anybody leave. You were stuck. You could walk. And that's what a lot of people did. there. And there were very few cars on the road within Manhattan. Now, I lived in Manhattan at the time, so I didn't need any kind of transportation to get home. I just had to walk. And we just kept watching the TV and, and looking out the windows at the towers, and they were just burning. You could see it. We could hear sirens constantly. People in our office were trying to get in touch, as I said, with friends or relatives uh, who were working there to find out if they were okay, try to help get them out of there. And I remember feeling angry at this point. I was shocked, but I felt angry. 
And I, I remember thinking, man, I, you know, this is it. I, I've been complaining about this shit, this radical Islam since I was a kid through the Iranian hostage taking in 79 when I was 14 years old. I just couldn't understand that we let it come to this, that we didn't take care of this problem. I remember thinking, man, is, you know, is anyone going to take these scumbags seriously now? At some point, you got to do something. And we just kept watching the towers. And I remember thinking, this is history that I'm watching. I mean, I'm watching history unfold right in front of me. You know, like when you were a kid and you were born post JFK being assassinated, you always heard from your parents and your older friends, you know, where were you when, when JFK was shot? Well, that's what I remember thinking. Well, this is going to be something for the rest of my life. I'm never going to forget. This was history. And we'd always remember where we were when it happened. And I kept thinking about the American response, you know, while we're watching the buildings burn. I kept thinking about President Bush. This was a guy that I, this is George W. I never voted for him, but I had hoped that he'd get revenge for us. And I felt very American at that time. It was not a partisan feeling. As I said, I never had voted for him, but I suddenly looked at him. The towers were smoking like crazy. And suddenly as I'm just watching them out the window, because we're all just standing there watching them slack-jawed. I see that the first tower goes down and it just goes straight down. It didn't topple. It didn't topple like a tree falling. It just went straight down. And the weird thing is that as it went down, the smoke from, I suppose, the collapse of the building kept the shape of the building intact in the empty space that had been vacated as the building went down. So as the first one hit the bottom, you looked there, and if you didn't look closely, it still looked like there were two towers standing. One side was building that was burning, the other side just smoke. And I, I couldn't believe what I had seen. I, I saw it with my eyes, but I didn't believe it. I had to look towards the TV that was in the same room and have to hear a newscaster tell me what I had actually seen, because I couldn't believe what I had seen with my eyes. It didn't seem real. And... The South Tower went first. The second one went down like a half an hour later. We we didn't know what to do. We were just standing there watching. Nobody really was thinking clearly. But it was the same thing. You look there, and there were two shapes of the tower still there, but it was a lot of smoke. And when they hit, man, it just, the amount of smoke that you saw was just like a ball, like like a movie, like you see, like, you know, like from Ghostbusters, uh, like when that giant Pillsbury Doughboy just seemed like a gigantic ball of smoke that was just heading down the street. And all of a sudden it like hit us or hit me. You know, I just got very nervous. Like what if our building was next? You know, we were in a landmarked building. And I remember a day or two later, one of the guys on my floor called me and said, don't go back to the building for a few days. He had heard from an FBI agent friend of his that our building was a terror target. So we didn't know what was coming. It wasn't like we had any ability to look at this in retrospect. We had heard other rumors that there was a shootout on the GW Bridge involving Muslim terrorists. That was something we heard later that day. And it seemed so real. People were, were talking about this for weeks in New York, about the shootout at the GW Bridge. There's no evidence it ever occurred. But that's what we were hearing. And we did hear about the you know Muslim terror states celebrating, of course, and that only just like added gasoline to the fire. 
Naturally, of course, it was the Palestinians who we had given billions of dollars in aid to over the years, and they were celebrating over there. This is how stupid America is. Anyway, we needed to get out of there. I think it sort of jolted us into reality when the second building, second tower fell. We needed to get out before the elevator stopped working. We knew that the subways and you know, the buses and the trains were all out. We didn't know what was going to happen next. So we took that elevator ride down from the 34th floor, and I remember holding my breath the entire way, terrified that we were going to get stuck in there. And I was with Jimmy LaRosa and a few other people, and he had gotten in touch with the girlfriend of one of his friends, and her name was Ginger, I remember. She had walked all the way from the World Trade Center where she had offices and over a mile or so to our offices so that she could get a car ride back home into Man in Manhattan in upper, or the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, wherever she lived. And as we were downstairs getting ready to leave to go back home, or at least me, I saw Jimmy with his driver and he had his car and all of a sudden I see Ginger and her, she had long hair and it was just thick with this pasty ash. It was just like she had dreadlocks is what it looked like, except her head was white, her hair was white, everything was white, her whole body was covered in ash and she was hysterical just screaming and crying and jimmy just bundled her up pushed her into the car and he ginger and the driver took off mike ross was a lawyer on our floor i don't know how old mike was back then it was 20 years ago he probably was in his 50s easy late 50s i don't know he was an old army guy a very determined guy and and you know he was an army guy he acted like an army guy that's how he's lived his life he was somebody that you could always trust he was like a swiss watch and he walked home. He walked home from Midtown Manhattan to Long Island. He walked home. I don't know if it was 20 miles, 30 miles. I don't know. Mike Ross walked home you know, on the highways, over the bridges. That's what Mike Ross did. He had to take, I guess, uh, the Whitestone Bridge to get into Queens and then walk on the, the, the shoulder, which I'm guessing there weren't many cars because nobody was coming into Manhattan at that time or even allowed to go out by car. So he was just walking. It was like, like a, an apocalypse. And it was very eerie walking back home through Manhattan that day for me. We walked without talking to anyone else. We were like in, in, in silence, like we were zombies walking up the street, up Madison Avenue. Sirens were going off. People were screaming. But the commuters that had to walk home that lived there, we didn't say a word to each other. Sometimes you'd stop in front of a, an electronic store and there'd be TVs and people would be watching the news. But we just kept walking and we could smell the fire so strongly. I was wearing jeans, black loafers, a green mock turtleneck shirt. And I, I don't forget that. And I'm doing this podcast today mostly without notes other than a couple of statistics that I might have. I'm trying to remember exactly what I felt back then. And as we're walking back, we were mixed with people that were covered with ash. I mean, we're all zombies, but you just turn to your left and there was some dude just walking silently next to you. And he was just ash from the top of his head uh, to, to his feet. Their entire bodies just, you know, it was, it was crazy. And I remember later on, uh, a few days later, maybe that day it started, there was a, a mass call for blood donations at every hospital in the city. You had to give blood because there was going to be so many injured people 
and we needed help. We needed supplies to get those injured people cared for, except not a single pint of blood was ever needed. Not a single pint of blood was ever used. You either died that day on 9-11 inside the World Trade Center, or you survived intact. And I remember starting like the next day, there'd be like those areas of construction in Manhattan where there'd be like those makeshift wooden, thin plywood, wooden walls that were going up on the sidewalks or perhaps on the side of like a Dwayne Reed, uh, one of the um, drug stores where there was like a broad wall, broad stone wall. And people had put up pictures of, of, of missing, of the missing that had worked at the World Trade Center and never came home. And you'd see a picture with, you know, of the person with the same, every sign said the same thing that was taped on there. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this woman with a telephone number to call? These are the people, as I said, that never came home. And eventually they started to decay and peel off and turn yellow, fall off onto the ground and just disappear over the weeks that followed because nobody ever showed up. If you were missing that day, you were dead. Nobody was found later unless they found your, some teeth in the rubble and they could match it to your DNA or your dental records. And that was the only way anybody was ever found. But nobody wandered home a day later alive. Now, I remember when I made my way back to my building, Jose, who was a Cuban doorman, and he and I briefly discussed it. And he was practically a communist, Jose. I had just met him. Um, we had just moved in. And he told me that it was probably an inside job, a domestic terrorist. And I'm like trying to be polite because I'm like just moving into this building. I said, what are you talking about? It's like it's already been established that it was Muslim terrorists. Like this was the first time in my life. I've been crying about Muslim terror since I'm a kid. And like I'm right this time. Like the last thing I want to hear is some communist telling me that it was an inside job. That was like the day that it happened. He just could not be convinced. Oh, I don't think so. I remember that. I just hated him that moment uh, and forever after. I never forgot what he said. And, and I remember thinking we had enemies amongst us. On the first day on 9-11, we had enemies amongst us. The next day, the smell of the fires, the fires weren't out yet from the World Trade Center, from Ground Zero. You could still smell it. And I lived... I don't know, three or four miles north of ground zero. The burning smell just singed the hairs inside of your nose. Your eyes burned. You could smell that smell of like burnt tires. There were papers that were just, just blowing in the wind on the street all over the place. And you'd, you'd grab one and it was like a page from a book that had blown all the way from the World Trade Center, just ripped out pages from books, and some had burn marks. They were singed from fire. But New York was pretty much one on those days that followed. We were together. It was not a partisan affair. We were all Americans. And I remember we were hanging outside of our buildings, like on the street, just talking for a few days. There was, it wasn't like there was any work to go back to. So you just kind of hung out with your neighbors, people you didn't even know. And everybody was polite. The subway started to work again and everybody was kind to their neighbors in New York City for a brief period, a couple of weeks. Now, Rudy Giuliani wasn't an idiot yet. And he was the outgoing mayor. And I think he actually stayed on a little bit extra time before Bloomberg took over because 
New Yorkers were so desperate for, I guess, continuity in their leadership that they, if you can believe that people were okay with Rudy Giuliani back then. He, he was very helpful during those days. He didn't do anything that really mattered, but his leadership and his words were huge. He walked to ground zero with Senator Hillary Clinton. You know, you didn't think about partisan issues. I was happy that they were together. It felt good that we were one as a country. It was a warm feeling to know that we were one and that we were going to respond as one. That's how it felt. And Rudy spoke to all New Yorkers, and even Governor Pataki showed up, and this was an uninspiring man, and he didn't inspire anyone, but it helped. He and Giuliani were on TV. They were providing updates. You know, nothing with nothing, I suppose, but it, it helped. It worked. We felt so alone as New Yorkers. Did anybody care about us? We were trapped in New York City. The bridges and tunnels were shut. We were stuck there. We couldn't get out, like, for months, I believe. But you didn't care because you didn't want to leave. You didn't want to take a chance of going on a bridge. or You just wanted to hunker down and let this moment pass. But I remember thinking, does the country care? We're so alone here. We're trapped here. Does anybody care? I remember a few months later when Pataki was running for governor uh, again and his opponent was Andrew Cuomo. And we all know about Andrew Cuomo. Just the worst person imaginable from, from day one, I think, when he came out of the womb. He actually had the goal to say the following, and I, I wrote this down when he was running against Pataki. This is like months after 9-11. Quote, there was one leader for 9-11. It was Rudy Giuliani. If it defined George Pataki, it defined George Pataki as not being the leader. He stood behind the leader, Cuomo said. Quote, he held the leader's coat. He was a great assistant to the leader, but he was not a leader. I mean, that, that was the level of pettiness, of scumming of Andrew Cuomo. That ended basically any chance he had to the election. People just hated him. He was reviled after that. Like, how could he be making this a political event? But this was Andrew Cuomo. Everybody knew it. But sometimes New Yorkers didn't have the will to vote against a Cuomo for whatever reason. But everybody knew that he wasn't his father. I remember standing outside my building on September 12th, just standing around with people on the street, just talking. And some giant black kid, I don't know how old he was, 22 maybe, just a giant black kid riding this, riding this very small bicycle, much too small for him. And, you know, he was like eating his knees and he's weaving in and out of us on the sidewalk, not trying to hit us, but just kind of being there. And he was slowly going back and forth on the block, on the sidewalk, not even on the street. And he kept saying, ooh, the terrorists are coming to get you. They're coming to get you. And I remember thinking, like, what a fucking imbecile. But I also felt something. I also thought that he felt very excluded from society, very much of an outsider, clearly, because he was identifying with the terrorists. He was rooting against American society, even though he was an American. He was a New Yorker. That so many people in our country hated America, that didn't partake in the American dream. I remember thinking, these people are actually happy that we, we've been attacked, this guy included. And I don't want to go too much into many other related political issues stemming from 9-11, but I will say that it was the beginning of my political change. I was a Democrat then. As I said, I didn't vote for any Republican ever in my life uh, up to that point, and I didn't vote for Bush in 2000 before the attacks, and I didn't vote for Bush after in 2004. 
I, as I said, I never voted for a Republican ever up to that point. But back then, not every Democrat was like a soft leftist who hated America and our allies, you know, who loved critical race theory. And, you know, this was the mentality of today. This was not the mentality 20 years ago. You didn't have a, 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 a political party that so many people aspired to either become realtors or life coaches. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to digress. I don't want to make this into a funny podcast at all. But imagine being a, a life coach. Imagine having, you have one life in this world and you waste it on pretending that you actually matter by being a life coach. Your life is so utterly meaningless and you're pretending that you're in a position to advise people on how to live their lives better when you're a nothing. You're a total grifter. You're, that's what you are. You're a grifter. You live, you die. Nobody notices the life coach. Anyway, I digress. But the incredible rise of leftism after 9-11 in America, that was the astonishing thing to see. I remember the anger we all felt in the hours and the days after 9-11. I never could have dreamed, never could have dreamed that just seven years later, we'd elect a president named Hussein who would get on bended knee to Muslim dictators and apologize for what America had done to Muslims. And that's, this was something you couldn't even conceive of after 9-11. But when Obama rose, when Obama you know, came on the scene, that's when I realized that liberalism wasn't just an annoying political party, but it was actually a mental disorder, which causes people to hate America and, and love our enemies. And I never believed, first of all, and I've said this on the radio and I did radio for WABC back then, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, all the way through 2013. I never believed that Obama was a secret Muslim, that people were saying he was Christian. But I didn't think that it made a difference because he certainly acted like a Muslim terror sympathizer. Who cared what his religion was? It was irrelevant. He certainly acted like it. Now, George W. Bush, I wasn't a fan of his, but I sure loved him after 9-11. He rallied the country. He came to New York City, threw a perfect strike uh, as the first pitch of the first baseball game. Once baseball began again, I think it was against the Braves and Mike Piazza. And this is all without even looking it up. I believe Mike Piazza hit a home run that won the game for the Mets. It was amazing. And Bush came to New York and he told the American people that the people who knocked down the towers would be hearing from us very soon. And man, just I think back on it now, and it was just the greatest feeling. Like now, at last, the full might of America is going to be unleashed on these terrorists. At last, we'd stop appeasing them. And then we began the attack on Afghanistan, the Taliban. And, you know, Bush had made demands that the Taliban hand over Osama bin Laden and expel Al-Qaeda. You don't even remember that stuff back then. You just don't. All you remember is, you know, that the, I guess the Taliban had declined to extradite him and they ignored demands to shut down terrorist bases uh, or extradite any other terror suspects. That was not in the news that you cared about. You just knew that we were going over there. And sure enough, a few weeks after 9-11, you know, we invaded Afghanistan and I wanted them all dead. I didn't care. Innocent, guilty. This is how you felt back then. I'm just reporting it. But my happiness at the revenge, initially, it was awesome. But it grew to nausea as I'm listening to, to Bush. And this was early on. And I, again, I'm not even looking this up, but you can look it up. I'm right. I remember this. This is accurate. It wasn't long, maybe days after we went into Afghanistan, 
that Bush proclaimed that this was not a war against Islam, that Islam was a religion of peace. Uh, I remember what he said is, Islam is peace. The face of terror is, is, is not the truth faith of Islam, something like that. That's not what Islam is. Islam is peace, he kept saying. When we think of Islam, it's a faith that brings comfort to billions of people. And he just kept, he wouldn't, wouldn't stop going on and on because he was so afraid of being accused of being an Islamophobic, which was ridiculous. Now is not the time to appease the enemies. And I remember just thinking, like, we are fucked if this is our leader. And, and no one wanted to kill every Muslim because of 9-11. I mean, Muslims in America and even people who looked like Muslims, Indians, whatever, they were badly abused after the 9-11 attacks. We, a doorman who was an Indian who lived in Queens, and, and he told me stories. This is a hardworking guy at a shitty job. Him just telling me stories of him getting abused on the subway going back to Queens because people thought he was a Muslim. And it was just, it was just cringy stuff that, you know, I was mad at, at the terrorists, but the thought of somebody innocent, you know, that we would see being abused for no reason, it's, it makes you cringe. It makes you cringe. I mean, look, I get it. You can't just demonize everybody. But globally, it was not a war against Islam because if it were, we'd be invading more than Afghanistan at the time. But George Bush, who was a hero one day to me, became a major part of the problem after. And his lame rules of engagement handcuffed uh, our brave military men uh, in the fight over there. Of course, now we don't even care about fighting. We care about pronouns in the military and making sure that chicks with dicks can serve and you know the ones that are stapled to their forehead, whatever, whatever. As long as everybody's happy and gets their pronouns right, that's what's the important part about the military. But back then... He handcuffed our men. He was so desperate to not be perceived as an enemy of Islam that he made the war an impossible one to win. You know, we had a blank check after 9-11, I remember thinking. We have a time here. I don't know how long it's going to last, a few months maybe. We could do whatever we want. The world felt bad for America. So we could do what we needed to do to clean up this problem, and nobody would say a word, except, of course, our enemies. And if that meant destroying a large amount of people to kill the terrorists who killed thousands of Americans, in my mind, uh, too bad. I mean, I didn't care. We didn't have the luxury of being polite. And that softness from Bush, you know, ended up leading us to elect a president who sat in, in a church for decades every Sunday, listening to a preacher tell him that America was evil. How else could such a, an anti-American get elected to our highest office? America was exhausted by the war in Afghanistan. It was exhausted because of our weak leadership who wouldn't let our men destroy the enemy. So we elected Obama. And invading Iraq was really the killer. That really was probably the worst mistake, for worst foreign policy decision probably in the history of America. Because look at the, the domino effect. Um, we invaded a Muslim terror state, yes, led by a dictator, yes, who kept the savages in their cages, though. Saddam Hussein. And while he was a typical Muslim terrorist, he was terrified of America because he saw what we did in Afghanistan. He didn't want that. But as I said, Bush made the biggest foreign policy blunder ever. He invaded Iraq instead of Iran, which was the world's you know, leadest, leading sponsor of terror. And the exhaustion from those two wars uh, to the American people gave us a President Barack Hussein Obama. And Obama's presidency led to the first nukes deal with Iran, which didn't actually prevent Iran from getting nukes. And to Trump's credit, and I'm not a, 
a Trump fan. He abandoned the, uh, the nuclear deal smartly, but now we've got Biden back, who he was the one who famously uh, told Obama not to kill Osama bin Laden. And now he's rushing to get back into this Iranian nukes deal, but now the deal's even going to be worse than the prior one. And to think today on 9-11, 21 years later, that we'd be giving billions of dollars to Iran, giving them a nukes deal that allows them to make a nuclear bomb at the end of it, it's just stunning to me. And I think back on it, those days after 9-11, this was something I couldn't even have conceived. I'll never understand it today. Certainly wouldn't have understood it then. Iran was responsible for over 600 deaths, American deaths in Iraq. Defense officials have said about a sixth of all the fatalities were because of Iran. They manufactured and supplied to anti-American Shia militants across the border in Iraq from Iran. These roadside bombs, some of which were powerful enough to destroy U.S. Humvees and breach tank holes. Hulls, um, you know, they were, they first appeared, I guess, in Iraq in 2005, I read. And for years, they were the most lethal weapon that American troops faced during the eight-year Iraq war. But also keep in mind that Iran facilitated travel for al-Qaeda operatives between Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran back then. They provided shelter, safe haven for al-Qaeda terrorists, and they even allowed operational centers for al-Qaeda to exist inside of Iran. A leading Al-Qaeda terrorist. Now, Iran's always denied and said, no, we don't have anything to do. We have no Al-Qaeda in, in Iran. Well, guess what? In, in 2021, a leading Al-Qaeda terrorist who was accused of helping to mastermind the 1998 bombings of two U.S. embassies in Africa, he was gunned down inside Iran by Israeli operatives. So, whoops, you can't deny it anymore. He was there. You know, and they've allowed, Iran has allowed Al-Qaeda figures uh, inside Iran to communicate with other Al-Qaeda members and perform many functions that were previously directed from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now they're, they're from uh, Iran. Authorization for attacks, propaganda, fundraising. Anyway, here we are. We're about to give Iran billions of dollars to use on terrorism, whether it's going to be uh, inside Iran or it's terror proxies all over the globe, Hezbollah, Hamas. The Houthis, Islamic Jihad, the Syrians, Assad, killed hundreds of thousands of people. And we're keeping our southern border wide open and allowing a massive amount of Muslim terrorists to just walk into America unfettered. And as I've said on a, on a prior podcast, the Department of Homeland Security has flagged nearly 30,000 people traveling with Mexican passports with Middle Eastern names. Where do you think... Muslims, possible terrorists with Mexican passports, where do you think they want to travel to? Guatemala or America? Guess what? 81 people on the United States terrorist screening data set, the watch list, have been encountered along the U.S.-Mexico border since Biden took office, 66 over the past year. Usually it's a few a year. Imagine how many we're missing if we've encountered 66. And imagine that on the, the anniversary of 9-11, where it seems we haven't learned a damn thing in 21 years, I suppose. And as we beg Iran for a, a nukes deal, which doesn't require them to stop killing all over the globe, doesn't even require them to stop killing Americans inside America. I, I'm just stunned that after 21 years, after 9-11, after the anger we all felt in New York City, 
that we've capitulated so much to our enemy, that, that we allow them to dictate terms to us, to launch rockets at us in Iraq. The nuke talks are at somewhat of a stalemate right now because Iran is not doing what we wanted them to do, and naturally. The European countries that are involved in the negotiations expressed their disappointment with Iran the other day and saying that we were just at the end and now you're screwing this up. And Iran's representative said that it was, quote, regrettable that the three European countries have taken a step in the path of the Zionist regime to defeat the negotiations with this ill-considered statement, you know, referring to Israel. Quote, if such an approach continues, they must also accept responsibility for its results, he said. He's threatening us. This Iranian terror leader of a country that we could nuke and wipe off the map in one day is threatening us. And we're tolerating it now. Threats from the worst state sponsor of terror on the planet, the terrorists who gave comfort and protection to the 9 11 terrorist leaders, and half of America is good with this? In the end, I, I, 21 years later, defeating the global Muslim terrorists would not be an easy task because we've let it grow so much. We could have taken care of it 20 years ago, but surely it would get done without a massive problem. You'd destroy Iran's leadership any way you have to. It certainly worked with Japan in World War II. Yes, we nuked them. Yes, 150,000 people died. Yes, it prevented perhaps a million American deaths. Yes, Japan became a responsible global citizen. We could destroy Iran's leadership, and that would eventually kill Hezbollah and their other terror proxies. It would, we could strengthen our allies over there, ensure that it gets done, because we have plenty of allies over there now because they're getting attacked by Iran too. Strange bedfellows. But they really aren't the real enemy today. The, the, the Muslim terrorists over there. The real enemy of America is leftism. The people that won't allow us to do what needs to be done. They're the ones that control the country now. They're the ones that have infected our schools, infected our children. They've infected our military. They've infected government agencies. They're all over there now. They're the ones that need defeated first. But if you ask them, you know, if they're not mixing their elixirs and potions and doing their Pilates and taking pictures of themselves for the gram or coaching people on how to live a successful life when they themselves are complete imbeciles, they're the ones that need defeated first. They hate Trump and Republicans more than they hate radical Islam. And that's not even close. That's a fact. Just ask them. They'll tell you how much they love Iran and how much they hate Republicans. That's the mess we're in 21 years later. And that's my podcast for today. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Go to beyondthelegallimit.com. I've gotten some great emails from listeners. I appreciate any feedback you have. I know this is not a conventional podcast, but this is what it is. I'm doing it. Who knows how much longer I'm going to be here, but I want to get it out there for posterity purposes. Thanks for listening to me, and I'll be back next week.